self-awareness is our superpower. Being able to understand who we are and how we can best show up in this world is going to put us where we need to be. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In talking now to more than 800 people about their career paths, I've noticed incredible variation in how people have come to politics. Some caught the bug as kids and never left. Others come to it after retirement from a wholly different profession. My guest today, Ashley Menzies Babatunde, is a lawyer who's also interested in people's career journey and how to humanize success. She has a podcast called No Straight Path, in which she talks to people about how they made pivots or big changes or overcame substantial obstacles in their life directions. And her podcast is part of her own decision to choose work that fits her. Ashley's insights and those of her guests apply to the progressive political space, so you may want to listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Ashley of No Straight Path. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Ashley, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I am an attorney, storyteller, human. I have a podcast. So I'm a podcast host and creator of No Straight Path, where we look at the human stories behind success. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I know as a storyteller that you could tell your own story and do. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up and the kind of family Absolutely. Yeah. So I was born and raised in LA. I'm an only child. I have a really strong Caribbean influence from my dad's side. My grandparents, they immigrated from Guyana in the 1950s. And so I grew up with my grandparents with a lot of Caribbean culture, soca music, roti, uh, curry crab, lots of great food and music and really embrace that side of the culture. And then my mother's side of the family, I have a really strong Southern Black influence because my great-grandparents, they are from Arkansas and Mississippi. And during the Great Migration, they came over to Los Angeles. So my parents met in LA, they had me, I'm an only child, and I have a very strong community and strong extended family, but the actual immediate family is quite small. And I would say I was an overachiever, uh, very intense, very self-motivated. So there wasn't a lot of pressure from my family. They were just very supportive. 
but I was very intense. If I colored outside of the lines, as an example, I would have a complete breakdown, meltdown. My cousins, they'd go to the next activity. I'd need to understand why I failed at this particular project. And very goal-oriented. I wrote my goals down when I was 10. Still had that letter. My mom saved everything. And I wrote that I wanted to go to Stanford and go to Harvard and become a lawyer. And so I did all of those things, fortunately. And so most of my life, I thought it would be linear. And for most of my life, up till college, it was. I worked hard to get the grade, to do the next thing. And it was really important to me. Let me stop you there because I'm familiar with that kind of character that you describe in yourself because I think my mom was like that. My mom was like high school valedictorian and went on to be Phi Beta Kappa at Cornell and then went to Harvard for grad school. And And my wife is kind of cut from the same mold, whereas I think I was always viewed as an underachiever all the way through, even though I, I went off to an Ivy League school myself. But I didn't have that perfectionist need to get uh, the A plus or whatever. It seems to me like when you have the characteristic that you have from the people I know that you want to get everything right, that there's a point in life where you have to make a transition, where you come to an understanding that at this level, you can't ace every class, do everything right. When was that for you? Great question. That's actually what inspired my podcast. It was the California bar exam. I failed the exam and it was the first time that I had worked hard and didn't see positive results. And so that was really challenging. And then it made me realize that I attached too much of my self-worth, my self-esteem to the achievements, to the accomplishments. And so it was a lesson that I needed to learn. I'm glad I learned it. Didn't love the actual experience. <laughs> it seems to me like things like that happen to people who, ha- who are perfectionists or whatever you want to call it. It's not automatic to just learn it. Like, what would you say to somebody who is experiencing failure, say, for the first time, you know, failing the bar exam is not that big a deal. You can take it again. Life goes on, but it may feel extremely painful in that context. But what would you say to someone who at whatever point they have reached, they're suddenly not acing it? So I think the first thing, especially if it's your first experience with it, is to honor your feelings. It's pretty normal to feel disappointed, to be upset, whatever negative feelings that you ascribe to that time period in your life. It's okay to just feel them, but I do think you need to put a time period on it. (laughs) I've talked to a lot of different people and it can paralyze you. And so in addition to honoring your feelings, I think it's good to talk to other people who have experienced setbacks and failures and experienced life. With age comes wisdom. I certainly believe that. And so just talking to other people is very helpful. And I think that's why I wanted to share these stories because not everybody talks about it, but it's very helpful when you hear a story about how someone else has overcome a setback in their journey. And then you realize every successful person, every fulfilled person, every purpose-driven person who's done something interesting, they've all failed at something. When you got that result, back from the bar exam, what was the feeling you had? Oh my gosh, I was devastated. 
I'll be honest with you. I was shocked, first of all, because I couldn't believe that this would happen to me. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was devastated. And I was also in denial. I remember putting in my bar applicant number several times, hoping that there was a computer glitch. That didn't happen. And I even have thought perhaps over the weekend, I'd get an email from the bar examiner <laughs> saying they made a mistake. <laughs> so when you were taking it, you felt confident enough that you were answering enough right to, to pass through? Yes and no. So most people tell you that you are smart, you're hardworking. If you put the work in, you'll pass the exam the first time, especially if you go to Harvard for law school but it'll feel like you might have failed, but you probably didn't. Don't worry about it. So that was the advice I was given and so many others were. And so that's also why I walked away thinking I probably passed. Yeah. Did you feel like a sense of shame? Like, oh no, I'm going to have to tell my peers that this happened and I'm going to be exposed as not what I, you know, what they think I am? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it's so crazy to even say this now, but at the time I thought my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, he was a year below me in law school. I literally thought he would break up with me. This girl's not (laughs) smart enough. (laughs) He, you know, thinks that's crazy. But Yeah. yeah. I relate to that. I think pretty much everybody would. And I think that's why when I saw the title of your podcast, even I I thought, wow, there's real potential here for something that has a universal interest to it. Tell me about how you recovered from, like, what steps did you take after finding out that you failed and how did you right the ship? Yeah, so it was a bit of a longer journey than I would have liked. And so I think that first initial period of time, I really let anxiety take over and the shame takeover just because I hadn't failed anything before. And the bar exam, you can take it again, but still you need to pass it to practice law in the state that you're trying to practice in. And so it is a big deal when it comes to my career. It was high stakes and my job was on the line. So initially I did not handle it well (laughs) and I had too much anxiety and I was thinking too much. I had too much of a fear of failure as opposed to a desire and excitement about succeeding. And I think once I was able to make that mental shift, which took some time and let go of the dream a little bit, I think I was holding on to it too tight. That was very helpful. Instead of overstudying, just studying a normal eight hours, six to eight hours a day, not 10. That seems like quite a lot. You know, I know, but that's the bar exam. (laughs) (laughs) But trying to let go a little bit of the dream, I think that that was very helpful. I was able to relax a little bit more and not be so uptight and worried and anxiety-ridden. Yeah, because one of the things I've noticed about perfectionists, I don't know if it's fair to label you that, but people who want to get everything right or are used to getting everything right because of their level of talent or whatever, is they're often not that far from anxiety. Or they deal with that. And certainly nowadays, if you look at college kids, and I bet law school kids generally, that the rates of anxiety are, it's at least a third of the people who are suffering from some level of that. If you go into, I don't know, an athletic event or a academic thing or whatever with 
you, you can sort of self-sabotage when when you're facing that kind of extra intensity in your mind. You go up to the free throw line, you'll miss that shot if you can't calm yourself down. Exactly. Exactly. It was odd too. I'd been in high pressure situations too, but I think even with track, I was a track athlete at Stanford and it was high stakes and I was always quite nervous before, but as soon as you start running, you would lose that. I would lose that, the nerves, they would go away. And something about studying for the test, that was challenging, that I couldn't, I couldn't quite shake in the beginning. When you were taking the exam for the second time, what was your level of anxiety then? Or did you have it kind of calm? I think I was calm. You were ready. I think I was ready, but the wrinkle to the story is I didn't pass that time either. (laughs) You know, John Kennedy Jr., the son of the president, failed his New York bar twice and got it on the third time. I don't know if you... Yeah. And he, you know, he had every privilege and I think brains to go along with it too. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. And so... The third time was a charm, thankfully, but the second time I felt fine during the exam. The problem was the lead up. There was just too much anxiety. That whole lead up period, uh, it wasn't a healthy time for me. So, But the third time when you got your results, how did that feel? Oh my gosh, it's incredible. I still remember the day because my husband also got his results that day because he was a year below below me in law school. So it was his first time taking, but I was still afraid. So I had him type in my bar (laughs) applicant number and my mom was there too. And I passed, he passed, and we all hugged, a group hug, (laughs) screaming, jumping up and down. Amazing moment. I guess sometimes somebody doesn't make it. They don't pass the exam like you did the third time. I think my grandparents never learned to drive. Sometimes in life, you do get waylaid by a hurdle that you can't can't get over. Have you ever had something that you weren't ultimately able to get past? Yeah, I would say track. I quit my junior year in college. I had an injury, unfortunately, and high school, my senior year, tore my ACL. And I remember I was at the time, some of the local reporters were interviewing me and they'd ask me about soccer. You know, am I nervous about getting hurt? And I wasn't, I was excited. I love both sports. This is what I've always done. And then of course, tear my ACL and I'm out for a season. I come into Stanford just off of crutches and I could never really get back. I did a lot of double days. I did a lot of physical therapy, had a second surgery. And by my junior year, it just wasn't worth it. And so I don't want to say gave up, but it was that season for me was over. But it was wonderful in retrospect because it gave me the opportunity to do such amazing things that I never would have been able to do, like study abroad, join the school paper, discover my passion for journalism and storytelling as joined the Stanford Daily, all of these different things. I got three jobs. I finally could work so I could buy cute clothes. I was really into fashion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you were feeling that at the time, but 
sometimes a door closed is a door opening at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. So tell me about your entry into the world of, of actually legal practice. How was that? Yeah, it was good. It was good. Highs and lows, I would say. I was fortunate to find the practice group that I liked. So I think it certainly takes some time to figure out what kind of work you like. And I was in the litigation department. I knew I didn't want to do corporate. So I knew that I liked legal writing. I liked to research that development that was more aligned with who I am. And so I went into litigation. And when I got there, I quickly realized that I only like advocacy when I really care about a specific subject. So it usually has to be mission-oriented. I did a lot of housing clinical work, fighting evictions in law school, racial justice work, immigrants' rights work, really passionate about that. But once you get to corporate, it was hard to find the passion for the advocacy part. And when I was presented with conflict, especially opposing counsel, I felt a lot of discomfort and I did not like it at all, to be quite honest with you. And I realized I really liked advising clients and I really liked investigations. I liked digging into the facts, interviewing people, figuring out what's going on here, providing a remediation plan for the client, advising them, building those relationships and having a very friendly, amicable conversation. Huh. I noticed that you have some interest in sort of ethical practices in organizations and did I get that right? And what does that mean? Yeah. So it's within investigations work. So when we are investigating a company for a specific issue, it can either be the company reaches out to our firm. We've got a whistleblower complaint. We think something's going on here. Can you investigate it? We like to go in, figure out what's going on and create policies and provide recommendations to make sure that the company is working in an ethical manner so that they're not hearing from the DOJ, they're not hearing from the government, or they're not getting any whistleblower complaints within the company. And so I like doing that work because it also just felt mission-driven and mission-oriented. On my podcast, I talk to often people running progressive organizations and of, of varying sizes. And any organization that you run, it's a challenge to manage. It's a challenge to create the kind of culture that you can be proud of. And I think it's become maybe more complex of late with new energy coming from young people around them wanting a place that has balance. Law firms are not always known for having that for their young associates. All kinds of organizations have had a long history and have making people pay their dues in ways that maybe they're not standing for anymore. And you are considerably younger than me, representing a different generation. What are you seeing in organizational culture and ethics and new practices and how firms and other organizations are dealing with that? Yeah, I love that question. I'm actually super passionate about this work. I think that it's challenging because of the business model, but I do think that the younger generation, Gen Z, is inspirational in that way. I think millennials, we're a little bit different in that we were the people who went in 
and just worked. Work was supposed to be our life. We were supposed to love our work. We loved the ping pong tables that were in our work. We wanted to be there all the time. And then the pandemic happened. Some of us are having children. And so a lot of millennials are aligned with Gen Z with wanting more work-life balance. I am certainly one of those people. I advocated a lot for that at my firm. When it comes to the legal field, it's a little bit different because we have the billable hour. And so most of your worth as an associate, as an attorney is tied to the billable hour, unfortunately, even though people within the system don't necessarily believe in that practice. It's just how it is. So there could be some really well-meaning partners who don't love the system, but they also have client pressures. And the way that they judge you is how many hours you're putting in. That goes right to the bottom line of the firm. They There's a reason that culture is there because it it makes the firm profitable, which the partners can then share in those gains. Exactly. And so one thing that firms can do, and my firm's done this, and I was a, played a big part in advocacy in this way, is tying the billable hour to some of the more soft skills that are extremely important in firm culture. So I was on the all, number of diversity committees. I was on the leadership committee for the local chapter and then the firm-wide chapter. And we were looking at diversity and inclusion hours and trying to make sure that they got counted towards the billable hour. Because as a Black woman, I certainly want to help other candidates of color coming in. I want to have those conversations, speak at events, do all the work that I can do to help people feel seen and included. But I also have my cases. I have my caseload. When you're a mid-level, I'm managing up, I'm managing down. It's really challenging to do all that work. And so even though a firm or an institution can say they really care about diversity and inclusion, they're not tying any monetary value to that. It doesn't matter. And so I remember making this impassioned speech. It was hilarious in retrospect. It was like a big deal at the time. And I said, I was being dramatic, I would say, but I think it might've worked. We were talking to leadership and I said, imagine a firm where associates of color, associates who identify as LGBTQ+, any associate that is, identifies as an other, if they just went to their job every day, did their work, build their hours, and that's it. They didn't go to diversity and inclusion meetings. They didn't go to a recruiting events. They never appeared at a pitch to various clients. What would the firm look like? It wouldn't be diverse. It's such an added value. And if you're not giving people the monetary compensation, they're not going to do it. You'd get burned out. And so the firm gave us the billable hours towards diversity and inclusion, which is great. <laughs> I think the old view was you best serve equality by not recognizing difference. Like I talked to a progressive radio host recently who said, we dealt with the trans issue when I was younger. He worked as a trucker. He said, because Les went away, came back as Leslie. We accepted Leslie. We made some accommodations. It was no big deal. I think he was suggesting progressives are making trouble by focusing so much on identity issues and where politically that may not be advantageous in the general population. 
Why is your view, which is we need to recognize diversity, we need to honor it and accommodate, and I don't know how you'd characterize it, but take notice of it and use it for positive. Why is that a better road than what I characterize as the old view? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think it's a better road because the differences exist and the lived experiences are different. You can't really ignore that. And everyone's different. So I think it's really good to ask people what they want. How can I support you? All of those things. But when it comes to specifically the corporate context, people of color have more of this work to do, the diversity and inclusion work. They do that work. And so if it's not being recognized, then it's a disservice to the people that are doing that work. And then you see them getting burned out. You look at the numbers and it's pretty evident. I think it's also important to recognize and celebrate our differences because they exist. It doesn't mean one person's better than the other or anything like that, but we're not all the same and that's okay. They're not mutually exclusive, right? We can also recognize our commonalities. So the thing that I do on my show is I try to talk to people from all different walks of life and talk about our humanity because that's the one thing that we all have in common. And I think we can do both. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. What Has your course as a professional lawyer been straight? Have you had a straight path yourself in the career now that you have been employed in that way? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, I would say. Thankfully, my legal career has been more smooth sailing than uh, than getting to getting to it. The big switch was really understanding my strengths and what I liked doing and pivoting towards that. So I think it can be really challenging, especially in a big law firm, to do the work that you like and that you are interested in because of the market and the client demands. And so that's been the most challenging part for me, kind of advocating for yourself, trying to get into the room with the partners that you know you want to work with, saying no to other things that you might not want to do, which isn't always great. You kind of got to bend and figure it out, try to fill up your work with all the stuff you love. And, and so it's been a balancing act. So I would say that's been the biggest challenge for me. And then the other thing would be the work-life balance part that we've been talking about. Certain things happen in in my life, my mother passed away, and that changed my perspective. And I've always been family-oriented and always knew I probably wasn't going to work these kinds of hours my whole life, but going into the firm, a lot of people do that. They pay off their loans and they figure out what might make sense. So I've always been of that vein, but I think it became more crystallized after I lost my mom about two years ago. What led you to start your own podcast? What's the founding story there? Yeah, so it connects to, it's great. It's connecting to all the questions you've already asked me. So connects to the bar exam. When I was going through the bar exam struggle, I would say, I knew that once I made it over that hurdle, I wanted to share my story. I felt like it was so challenging for me to find similar stories, especially in these elite institutions and spaces where people don't really talk about their setbacks. And so once I passed, I wrote a blog post in 2018, and that actually resonated with a lot of people. I realized that there was a gap in the market here, and I thought perhaps 
I could have a podcast that tells these kinds of stories and tells the stories where you feel lonely. So it's not just about setbacks and failures, but it's about pivots. It's about non-traditional paths. It's about finding purpose. Let's just peel back the layer behind the LinkedIn posts and the social media highlights and really get to the humanity of these successful people. And how are we also defining success? Because that's changed too. And so I like to dig into that. So wrote the blog post, decided that a podcast would be great. Started my legal career, as you know, don't have much time to do anything else. <laughs> but early 2020, it was slow. And so I started recording podcasts with friends and just seeing if I could do that. And in 2022, I released a podcast teaser on my mother's birthday in February to honor her because it was something that we talked about that we did together. And so it was honestly a, a passion kind of grief project. It was something that I wanted to release because she loved the idea. And I thought, okay, what can I do to honor her? I've got to put this podcast out. She believed in it. I mean, she believed in everything that I did because, you know, as an only child, she just thought it was so great. Um, but I thought it would be a great thing to do. And so I put it out. And three weeks later, HubSpot reached out to me. How did they find you? Yes. How did they know about it? The power of the network and friends. My friend from college, Maya, she sent my podcast teaser to her friend, Alana, who worked at HubSpot and was launching this creators program. And so that's how they found out. And they asked me to join. At first, I said no, because it, the one requirement was weekly content. And I'm a big law associate. <laughs> it's like, guys. I don't think this is <laughs> feasible. So talked a little bit about it, figured out a way to ease into the program and decided to go for it. That's awesome, by the way, to have an idea and then have it picked up by a firm like that and gives you a lot of chance to have more people listen to it, I think, and learn from it. Does it end up paying you? What's the arrangement? Yeah. So the Creators Accelerator Program, that comes with an initial payment. They pay you as a host and then they provide a marketing stipend. And if you continue to grow your brand, then you're able to move up in the accelerator, very similar to Y Combinator and some of the other startup accelerators. The more you grow, the more they believe in your brand, they'll invest in you monetarily. I unfortunately did not make it to the next round of the accelerator. It was a pretty hard number to get. Most people didn't. But they liked my brand. They like what I'm doing. So they invited me into another program. And so I am in the HubSpot Podcast Network now. And I have an opportunity for monetization. Not there yet. I've got to keep growing. I've got to grow. But I have marketing resources from them, speaking opportunities, workshops, all of that, which has been amazing. I mean, you said you started out by interviewing friends. And if I understand who you're looking for... We all have friends who haven't had a straight path, but are, are doing well. What is an ideal guest for you? I think everyone has an interesting story, but some people have more interesting stories than others <laughs> up to this point in their life. And they know how to tell them sometimes too. Better. Exactly. Yeah. And yes. they know how to tell them. And so that was number one. I wanted to get some people who I knew had a great story. That's kind of what I did when I was on the school paper in college. And... Someone who is wise. So 
I certainly like to talk to different people from various age groups, but we are focusing on the millennial perspective mid-journey. And I think wisdom is great. I love those podcasts where you can walk away feeling inspired. And so I try to look for inspirational guests, people who are wise, who people have had interesting journeys. And then I like to mix it up when it comes to influence. I went after, asked my ESPN broadcasting friend and my friend who has a hit show on CW TV network. Then I asked my friend who's a teacher who doesn't have a big following, but he just has an interesting story or a friend who's in politics, who's on the rise. And I, but I feel like everyone needs to hear her voice because she's just so wise. The last bunch of years before you started the podcast and, and since has been, you know, for this country, just a very tricky political time with the rise of the Tea Party, the rise of Trump, the four years of his governance and, you know, January 6th. How much has that come into your life or impacted you? I remember the day that Trump was elected and I was in law school. It was a very political time and just a very political campus. I had friends who are activists. They want to burn the system down and abolish the police. I have friends who think those friends are crazy. <laughs> and there's a lot of fighting on campus, you know, in an intellectual way and always respectful, which I liked. It felt like there's a diversity of opinions at Harvard, which I love. But it starts to become more polarized, which I didn't love. I am someone, before Trump got elected, I actually pitched a bipartisan club, which is crazy. I'm a progressive, but I like working with the other side. I know that not everyone's going to think the same way. And I like to see people come together over commonalities and moving forward and trying to affect change in that way. Because I can connect with lots of different people, I always thought, oh, I'd be a great bridge. And as time has gone on, I felt disillusioned with trying to do that work. I've removed myself a little bit from politics for quite some time because it was depressing even though I was a political science major in college and studied all of this. And recently I realized, maybe a year or two ago, that it's not good to disengage. It's good to continue to stay informed and be positive and work with people to try to affect change. My personality is just not one of anger when it comes to politics. It's kind of a luxury to live in a country where you don't have to think about politics, where in general doesn't impact everybody's life and where maybe there's a political class that is exercised about things. But when the president is not playing by the rules and is lying every day and is trying to hold on to power even though he loses a vote, which is really quite contrary to the even flawed path that we've had as a nation. I kind of wonder how far that seeps in. It has been kind of an emergency for a while. And I think that's recognized in a certain category of people, certainly people I talk to. It, when you talk to people, is it less so? No, no, everyone's like that. No, yeah. that's why <laughs> everyone, yeah, especially in law school. It was very activated. It was very challenging. I remember my last post, when I graduated saying that I loved getting to know people and chatting and learning from different experiences. 
But if they voted for Trump, that's where I <laughs> drew the line. <laughs> and that was a conversation. I think after law school for me, a lot of things happened, right? We talked about the bar exam. We talked about the loss of my mother. January 6th happened two weeks after my mom passed away. And so I, I don't know if I was just there. I, I don't know if I was, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I wasn't able to engage in the way that I was able to before. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because I'm some like 800 interview plus into my podcast. I've talked to a lot of people about their career paths and some of them have been what appear to be straight, but most of them have had the kind of setbacks you talk about, the kind of unexpected meeting that changed the whole trajectory of their career. I just talked to a Stanford professor the other day who he went off to college. He dropped out as a freshman. He wasn't, he was not ready. He worked a whole bunch of jobs as sous chef and landscaper and carpenter. And what happened to him is he kind of developed a work ethic and he kind of developed the rationale through people he was talking to for like why he maybe ought to take advantage of the opportunity he had to go to college that his coworkers didn't have. And he went back and he kind of moved through undergraduate, moved through a PhD program, went on to teach at Berkeley and then Stanford. And he Zoomed after that. There's the guy who was kind of in graphic design and then ends up being chief technology officer for Obama. Careers can be very unpredictable, especially, I think, in the last bunch of years. You, you might have lots of different careers. You might suddenly pivot into something different and find that that's where your passion is. What would you say to people who either are sure they know what they're doing or are completely lost? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. So first, I would say to both parties, right? So the people who feel lost, to the people who know what they want to do, to look at their strengths, try to understand what they're good at, and pay attention to what lights them up. Pay attention to what you're doing in your free time. Are you reading the New York Times every day and just going to the political section? I read the New York Times every day. I'm going straight to the profile stories. I'm going straight to the human stories. I read memoirs all the time. Think about the things that you just love talking about in your free time, because I think that's going to help set you on a trajectory that's going to be aligned with your personality and the work that you're meant to do. It's hard to find out. Also be patient with, your, with yourself. Try new things. I think that's really important to be open to opportunities. Even if you're someone, you know what you want to do. You've done all the research. You've done all the internships. You've talked to every person in a coffee chat like me. Be open to something that might be a bit different. You just never know where it will take you. Last night, I was interviewing a guy who runs a digital political consulting firm that's that's doing well. They just did the John Fetterman for Senate campaign. So, But his first job was kind of a data entry job for a corporate advertising enterprise. And... It was, it's not the kind of job I would have sought. And I think it was the kind of job he took because he couldn't find something in Congress. He couldn't find a job there. And he spent more than a year of his life in that. And I think some people might not even ask him about that, but I wanted to because I'm very curious about like, how do you get impacted 
by even something like the time you spent cutting potatoes or the time you spent doing data entry, because that's all part of that non-straight path that we all have. You know, you meet somebody there, one thing leads to another, you learn you don't like large firms, you learn you don't like advertising, you learn you are interested in advertising. That's the, the nature of your development. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just think that there are no wasted experiences, right? So even if you feel like you're not where you feel like you're supposed to be, or it's not where you wanted to end up initially, I think you have to always take that opportunity to learn. Take that opportunity to meet people wherever you are, figure out what tasks you like, what things you don't like, really be introspective as you move through your career and through your life and your journey. I think our superpower as humans and based on everything, all the interviews I've done thus far is self-awareness is our superpower. Being able to understand who we are and how we can best show up in this world is going to put us where we need to be. Yeah. My own experience was not wanting to work for somebody else and getting that clarified and then trying to do my own thing and turned over time, maybe to my surprise more than anybody else's to be a path that worked. And, you know, I wonder where you are. I mean, this is an entrepreneurial venture for you, your podcast, right? This is, this is not working for a W-2 paycheck at a law firm on your straight path. How does that feel to you? Yeah, that's a great question because I am certainly an accidental entrepreneur. And uh, so there are parts that I love and parts I, I don't love. I love setting my own schedule. I love the doors that this is opening. I'm getting to meet people like you, have wonderful conversations, dig into my passions, tell stories. It's incredible. The downside is I don't love marketing. I didn't go to business school for a reason. Uh, <laughs> and thankfully, I can outsource some of that stuff, which I'm doing. But I realize the business side of the work is not as fulfilling, is not as fun for me. And so I think that if I could continue to work for a brand through my podcast and continue to outsource certain tasks, that's probably the best way I could move forward. But I, I don't really want to employ people, don't really want to be the boss. I like to be my own boss, but that's it. So perhaps that's called a solopreneur, I think is a new word people are using, which I'm okay with. But I have good friends who have their own companies and they're CEOs and they're going out and they're getting investors and they have, you know, a team and it's not in me. <laughs> well, so far. Um, yes. But if you are employing people to market for you, if you are part of a podcast network, you are not a solo entrepreneur. As anyway. You probably have somebody helping you with audio or I, I don't know what you have going That's on. That's a good times. point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a guest that you've had, maybe in the political space, but it doesn't have to be, that stuck in your mind that you felt when you're interviewing them, hey, this is a really good fit. This is this is the kind of person that I wanted to talk to when I started this. This is what it's illustrating. I really have this this feeling sometimes when I'm doing an interview that I've hit the bullseye. 
you know, in one way or another. And I've hit, hit that from lots of different angles, I guess. But what's your experience there? Yeah, certainly. Number of guests. So one guest is Kristen Turner. So we went to law school together. She is in politics. She works for the super PAC associated with Emily's List. Uh, I can't quite remember the name of the super PAC. Women Vote? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah my, my area. <laughs> yes, exactly. So she does that work. She worked for the Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Elizabeth Warren's husband was our professor, Professor Mann, one of my favorite professors. We talk a little bit about that. But her story, which I love, is she's one of those people who's very wise at a young age, and she listened to herself, and she said something that really stuck with me. And she said, I've learned how to trust myself with my own life. There's something so profound in that because there's such a temptation to not seize the wheel. I don't know why that is. It seems like we would all know, right? This is your life. Lead it. Go where you want it to go. But instead, there's all these voices that might be your parents' voices or your anxiety or society. Tell me more about her. She's nailed something there. She has. You're so yeah. right. And it's everything that you just said as far as all of these external factors. And the most successful, fulfilled people I'm noticing, they are able to trust themselves with their own lives. They're able to understand what they want and make decisions and follow that. And it always leads to this really amazing path of fulfillment. And Kristen is someone that was head of the Black Law Students Association. She had a big law firm job lined up at M&A Tech in San Francisco. And when she had to make her decision, she turned down the big law firm job. And she said it was kind of like an alarm system going off in her. It was quiet. There was enough of it that told her this is not right. And she talked to her mentors. She talked to, I think, the governor, Deval Patrick at the time, and Dean Martha Minow. And they all said to her, listen to that. While her peers, other people, said, go, go get that money. Go to a big law firm. What are you doing? Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Do the cautious thing. Do the safe thing. Go be a consultant. Go to Wall Street. Sometimes money's important, but yeah, yeah. But more important, if you can find enough money, is your soul, right? And or some word for that, your alignment with what you do. Yeah, I completely agree. And so that had led her on this very no straight path journey <laughs> where she took a lot of different jobs, starting with a bankruptcy startup, Upsolve. I think I've interviewed the founder of that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I know he's done some really incredible work. So she was the first attorney to hop on that nonprofit at the time. And she created her own fellowship. She went to Harvard, explained what she wanted to do, and they gave her the funds to do that. And went and did some work in D.C. on expungements and then found herself working for a smaller political firm and now is working with Emily's List and the Super PAC and doing that work, work for Elizabeth Warren's campaign. So she's just been following the things that light her up. I loved her honesty. She's still not at a point where she's sure this is it, but she knows she's closer to alignment. That may change. You may be only be aligned with something for a little while. Like I got interested when I was in college in 
in data visualization. I took a course from a professor who was the guru of that, the visual display of quantitative information. Who knows why? Maybe some people find that incredibly boring. I found it fascinating just to see how a picture could be worth a thousand words. I didn't do anything with it. But like 20 some years later, after I built a software firm and sold the firm and I I wanted to do something next, I went back to that and I made some posters of political history, a visual history of the Supreme Court and a little overlap with you there and other things. What I'm recalling about it is that one day I said, I'm going to send this poster to this guy who's never heard of me. His name's Richard Saul Werman. He was the founder of TED, where they did those TED Talks. Yeah, yeah. I just sent it to him, and I thought nothing more of it. And then I got a email, and it, it said, come visit me. I want to talk to you about this. I was in D.C. I flew up to Rhode Island. I talked to this guy who has written 80 books in that sort of area of information architecture. And suddenly I was having an experience in an area I was interested in that I never imagined I would have. I developed something of a friendship with this guy. He's put me in a book of his. It led to stuff that was all based on me trying something in this area. This is so much more interesting way to live a life. It's a small part of my life, but you can do lots of things like that. Exactly. What else would you like people to know about your podcast? What else would you like people to know more about your relationship to politics? I am very supportive of candidates that I really believe in. The polarization of politics has been just challenging for me, even though I, I care more about the policy. When I talk to my politician friends, I've asked about housing policy and asked about how we can affect change as opposed to like the interfighting that we have on all of these different media forms. I think that's completely reasonable way to be thinking about it. One of the subsets of people that I interview are people who are in the bridge building work or in the conflict resolution work or conversations across divides. Because even as much as I personally am a partisan and I'm very interested in the political combat and interested in the people who are fighting it, I'm also very cognizant that like, if you step back one more level, that we can't have this kind of polarization escalate further, that it can become very dangerous. You can go to political violence. Countries can break down and everything will be worse for everyone. I think it's okay to have that kind of personality. We need that now. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You know, it's, you know, it, it is a tricky time and everybody deals with it differently. Yeah, you asked about the podcasts, if I wanted to add anything. The racial justice reckoning, that certainly affected my life. I like how people are calling it the racial justice (laughs) reckoning. I don't know if I fully processed it. I think I'm upset about it. I'm upset about the way it was arrested by the forces of reaction, as I see it. I think that we went so quickly from a enormously valid protest about serious matters that had the potential to really change the country and was starting to, and probably is still changing things, to finding reasons to undermine it and having people 
actively and successfully push back. Yeah. I, I don't know if you felt that way. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying. It's like the pendulum swing. We had Obama and then everyone was saying that was a reaction. And now we, we've had this racial reckoning. And then they're saying there's a reaction to that now. It's more polarized than it was before. And I was studying polarization in uh, college in 2010, I remember. Yeah. We had plenty then and we had plenty in the 19th century. But the way it's shaking out racially right now is very unhealthy. What else should we know about your podcast, if you have anything? Yeah, I think that my podcast is supposed to make people feel seen. That's really what I want to do. And my hope is that we can all see ourselves in the various stories, even if we might have a different path in life and might look different and come from a different place. I've noticed that people from all different walks of life are resonating with various stories, which makes me very hopeful. I, I wanted to ask you about that because one of the words that you reference a lot is success, and you're interested in people who are successful. And that is such a open term for definition, right? Like, my mom taught math in a high school. I think she had a successful career. She didn't have a lucrative career. What are you looking for when you're seeking someone with success who has had a no straight path to it? How are you think about that concept? Yeah. So a lot of the work that I'm doing is redefining success as well. So it's someone to me that is fulfilled in doing impactful work. That's really what it is, but everybody has a different definition. And that's a question that I asked often. I ask, how do you define success? Do you feel successful? Because I've also noticed in my industry is that there are a lot of successful people on paper in quotes, the way that society often defines people who are successful, meaning they have certain degrees, they make a certain amount of money, but they're unhappy and they're perhaps not tapping into their passions and into the work they're really supposed to be doing. And so those people will not be on my podcast. <laughs> so many of them seem like they have their shit together and maybe they do. And so many of them have a trajectory that they've planned out. They're going to be a scientist. They're going to be a lawyer, whatever it is. And they are ahead of the game in getting there very apparently. But I'm 57 and I know those people a lot later in their life. And I know that some of them didn't stay on that path. And I know that some of them stayed on that path to their detriment. And I know that some of them stayed on that path. I love it. All of those roads are possible, but that what matters, I think, is what you already have an insight into and what you're illustrating, which is you have to find the fit for you. And you are different than anybody else. And what is a fit for somebody else and sounds wonderful and got them the Nobel Prize or got them the fancy car or whatever trappings might make you miserable. So forget about it. Just do your thing. Write your own thing. Generate your own challenges. Exactly. I think that's exactly it. I feel like so many people work hard to get to a certain place and may not be happy and may not be fulfilled and they stay there. And I hope my show 
shows that you can make a pivot, that you can change, that you can find fulfillment, that the path's not linear and that other people have done it. So you can do it too. And I think like what's not a good fit for everybody, but is a good fit for a lot of people I pay attention to is a life dedicated to change making in society is a life where you realize that not everything that's going on has to be that way and that you might have some role in making it better. So one of the reasons I love interviewing people and talking to them is I see a lot of people who are doing that and have found their fit. Yeah, that's so true. It's so true. When you're tapping into change making and filling your purpose, it feels incredible. Ashley, is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? I don't think so. Is there anything else you want to say? I feel like I want to clean up this politics thing. (laughs) Okay. The way that I've been able to engage in politics more is I've been able to talk to more people about policy. And and that's been really life-changing for me. That seems reasonable to me. There's something distasteful for a lot of people about the politics part of politics. I don't think you have to be the type of person who likes to delve into that to... And you don't have to feel bad that you don't. (laughs) Not everybody's a political animal of that sort, even though I talk to a lot of them. Yeah. And I think perhaps I feel like I need to be that way because I went to law school, because I was a political science major at Stanford, because I have friends in politics, because I care about people and how policies and systems affect people. That fighting part that's so challenging for me. I, I met my wife in a graduate program in political science. And she is just like that. She's not a campaign politics nerd. That's not where her heart is. That's not what she's interested in. And that's just fine. Yeah. So anyway, it's been lovely to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time. I wish you tons of luck on the podcast. And I hope a few people from here check it out. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. I've had such a great time chatting with you too. Thank you. That was Ashley Menzies Babatunde. She's at ashleymenzies.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.